Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. It's good to be with you for our next installment of podcasts relating to our book, Strengths and Diverse Families of Faith. Lauren Marks here with. And this is Dave Dollahite. Today, we're going to be talking about a chapter entitled Loving God, Loving Others, the Sacred Among American Mainline Protestant Families. This is a piece that was lead authored by two graduate students, exceptional graduate students, T.J. Moore and Melanie Sorrell Hill. We were also joined on this piece by a leading scholar and minister in the area of youth and religious studies, Pam Epstein King, as well as our longtime friend and colleague, now retired, Professor Emeritus from University of Delaware, Rob Palkovitz, and Dave and I bringing up the rear. As with other chapters in this book, we were doing a deep dive with a team of students exploring eight different religious and ethnic communities. And we're delighted to get to do a, a deep dive of American mainline Protestant families with you today. We conducted in-depth qualitative interviews with 20 mainline Protestant families, a total of 47 individuals, 20 mothers, 20 fathers from the same family, and we also interviewed seven youth from those families. Major findings revealed that uh, a sense of sacred responsibility with God reportedly influenced a sense of sacred relationships with others, particularly those within the family, for these, these families that we interviewed. Today, we're going to address three domains. First, general life strengths. Second, marital strengths. And third, parent-child strengths within these families. And before we dive into reading a number of first-person accounts or quotes from those that we interviewed, we'd like to just say a little bit more about mainline Protestants in the United States in general, and then a little bit more about our sample in particular. And then we'll share with you a number of quotes from the wonderful people that we interviewed, most of whom we interviewed in their homes, a couple in their places of worship. So mainline Protestants are a significant core of the Protestant denominations in the United States. Mainline Protestants are sometimes also called mainstream Protestant or old-line Protestant churches. They make up a large portion of Protestants in the United States, with the majority of mainliners attending one of the following denominations, Episcopal, the faith that I was raised in, by the way, Presbyterian, Lutheran, United Methodist, American Baptist, United Church of Christ, or Disciples of Christ, they're also called. Mainline Protestant churches tend to affirm that Scripture is God's Word and to encourage their followers to read the Bible for themselves and apply its teachings to their lives. Mainline Protestants generally map onto the rest of American society in terms of basic demographics and opinions about social issues and politics. According to the Pew Research Center about uh, five or six years ago, within faith profile indicated that mainline Protestants are split fairly evenly uh, between women and men, 45% women, 45% uh, men, and are predominantly white, 86%, predominantly married, 55%, fairly well-educated, 63% having at least some college. 
Many mainline Protestants regularly participate in sacred practices, including saying grace and uh, church attendance. Though a majority report a belief in and adherence to the Bible as the Word of God, they do differ from more evangelical and fundamentalist denominations in that mainliners tend to hold less absolute views on biblical inerrancy and often believe that uh, science complements theology. Although they they once comprised a large percentage of the U.S. population, recent decades have seen uh, mainline numbers decrease in relation to more conservative or evangelical Christians. As noted by Fuller in recent years, mainline Protestants are suffering the same fate as many other American religions, namely that fewer replacements from millennials have emerged, and like with other denominations, their millennial members tend to be spiritual but not religious and less interested in formal participation. Turns out that there are actually relatively few social science studies that have focused on marriage and parenting among mainline Protestants. So the study that we'll be sharing with you today is, is one of those few that focus on mainline Protestants. However, there was one really good study done by uh, Spillman and colleagues it was a rigorous longitudinal study, and the sample of that study was about 60% mainline Protestant. And consistent with a number of other studies done of various other faiths, Spillman and colleagues found that parents' religiosity was significantly related to child religiosity, and that parent and child religiosity was positively related to healthy family functioning, to strong family relationships and to later affirmative views of committed romantic relationships and marriage. So consistent with many studies, religion tends to be beneficial for families in a number of ways. One of the leading active psychologists of religion in the world today is our colleague and friend Annette Mahoney, who has introduced the idea of sanctification, where we give special sacred weight and meaning to relationships, in particular. And the idea of sanctification in marriage and family life is a predominant and prevalent belief among many of the religious individuals that we've interviewed in the American Families of Faith Project, including mainline Protestants. Again, marital sanctification is the belief that God is part of one's relationship or that God endows one's relationship with the perspective of being sacred, divine, or set apart for a holy purpose. Empirical work done by Ellison and colleagues found that the sanctification of one's marriage, meaning how sacred the participants viewed the marriage as being, did add significantly to the capacity to work through stress in marriage, and that this ability was positively associated with marital quality. Additional research has also identified that many religious parents view their relationship with their children as a sanctified relationship, and that sanctification is positively associated with increased parental commitment, parental involvement, parental identity formation, and the positive development of moral consciousness in children and youth. However, despite those studies, few, if any, qualitative studies have explored religious and relational processes, uh, and as well as meaning-making in mainline families. And our approach is to interview families. The interviews typically last an hour or two, and we explore a wide range of ways in which their faith 
their religious beliefs, religious practices, and their faith community influence their marriage and family life. So the study that we're going to talk about today explores how highly religious mainline Protestant families do in their family life in order to learn from them directly from their own words what their faith means to them in the context of their marriage and their parenting. By the way, consistent with a study done by the Pew Research folks back in 2014, our sample of mainline Protestants is quite consistent with the national average, which is about 90% of our sample are white. Most were college-educated, middle, socioeconomic status or above. The average family that we interviewed had two kids, and they'd been married for an average of about 20 years. Our participants, both women and men, consistently referenced the centrality of their relationship with God as shaping their marital and parent-child relationships. And many of our participants' stories, we encourage a narrative approach to interviewing. Their stories reflected central principles expressed in the scriptures by Jesus when he was questioned, for example, regarding the greatest commandments in which he responded that the first was to love God and the second to love your neighbor as yourself. And many of the mainline Protestants that we interviewed often summarized these two great commandments as their core values, using the phrase, quote, love God, love people, end quote. Okay, so now we'll dive into the findings and the quotes. The first domain that we'll discuss is sort of general life strengths. And the first theme in in this area was the idea that we can receive support from God. A number of our mainline Protestant participants repeatedly shared the belief that they receive personal support from God and that their personal identity as a believer in Christ was important to them and it made a difference in their life. This belief in divine support typically seemed to stem from their sense of relationship with God, and many spoke of God in quite personal ways. For example, Mindy, and by the way, all the names that we use are pseudonyms to protect privacy. So a daughter who we interviewed, age 15, who we'll call Mindy, said, I know God is always going to be there. He always has his hands protecting me. I'm going to have to go through hard times, but I know he's right there to tell me You can get through it, Mindy. Just keep on going. Reflecting on a profound difficulty in her own family, a mother we'll call Aaron shared the following. My faith was deep enough at the time that I was able to say, this is not the end of the world. We will be okay. We'll get through this. This is not a tragedy. It's a shame, but it's not tragedy. Uh, Another teenage daughter uh, we'll call Jill, age 18, who also was reflecting on a family challenge that they were experiencing, said, Well, I think when my grandfather died in December, and I'd never lived with anyone who had died before, so it was a pretty big thing. But I think it was really sad in a lot of ways. But through the whole thing, God did so many things that made us feel like he was really there and really cared about us. A father named Eli reportedly felt God's support, wisdom, and knowledge through the Bible, a resource that had led him to trust God. Eli said, Every question you have, the answer is in the Bible. The answer to every question, it's right there. God is all wisdom. He's all knowledge. No matter what's going on in your life, you can turn to and read the Bible and trust God. 
For a young daughter named Natalie, who was just 10 years old, God's help was sought through prayer. She said, The biggest thing I'm thinking of is prayer helps us make a lot of decisions. Being a military family, we've had to make a lot of decisions about where we're going to go. Just last week, my sister and I were dealing with some friendship issues where we didn't really know what we wanted to do. So we're like, you know what? We just need to pray. Many of the mainline Protestants within our sample discussed their ability to receive support and direction from God through religious practices, including prayer and Bible study. Many also discussed the framework of identity and purpose that their faith offered them, as we'll discuss next. So this next theme, the second theme in our domain of general life strengths, is about having a framework of purpose. For many people who we interviewed, uh, well, for many people in general, the sort of big questions, the existential questions of why am I here, what's the purpose of this life, and what happens to me when I die, create some measure of doubt or concern or anxiety, or at the very least, curiosity. For some religious people, these questions and concerns are at least partially, if not quite uh, thoroughly, addressed by their faith in God and a belief that there is a purpose to their life and a sense of identity that comes from being engaged in a relationship with God, with God's plans and purposes for their lives. In other words, something bigger or something beyond themselves. For example, one mainline Protestant who we interviewed will call Emily stated, I think that having faith in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures definitely gives us a framework in which to work out some of the issues that come up that tend to pull people apart. For many participants that we interviewed, their religious faith seemed to foster a sense of purpose, unity, and identity in their lives. For some, this purpose contributed to their perception of enjoyment and meaning in life, despite challenges and obstacles. For example, Vicki, a mother, said, I think the biggest thing my faith and beliefs do for me is no discrimination. We try to really live that, even for our son, Zach, too. Everyone is equal in God's eyes. Another mother, uh, Martha, explained that, Because of my faith, I am a certain way. I have a certain way of viewing life, that it is not pointless, you know. I believe that caring about other people matters. For several of the mainline Protestants in our study, that sense of purpose was tied to their personal happiness, their joy, and their overall satisfaction with life. Now we'll turn to some influences of faith on the marriages of those that we interviewed. And as we move to the second domain of marital strengths, we remind our listeners or, or introduce to our listeners, if this is your first American Families of Faith podcast, that the individuals that we interviewed were referred to us by their corgi as being uh, particularly strong marriages, uh, strong in their faith. So these are some remarkable women and men wives and husbands, and that is the context as we move to marital strengths. As Dave mentioned earlier, these couples have been married for, on average, about 20 years, but were particularly strong in those relationships, and we learned a great deal from them during the interviews. One of the themes that came up for our mainline Protestant families in connection with marriage was the importance of unity in religious experience, and the idea and ideal of experiencing unity within the marital relationship was expressed by many wives and husbands within our sample. 
Sharing sacred experiences, including shared religious beliefs and practices, uh, reportedly enhanced marital unity for many of these wives and husbands. A husband named Samuel reflected, I remember we got together pretty early on in our marriage and decided that we are now one unit. So there is no my needs versus your needs. There is only what God is going to do through us as a couple. And we're either going to sink together or we're going to swim together. But there's not going to be one's going to be better and one's going to be worse. Because then we're both going to be worse. We are one unit. Also, in connection with this theme of unity, a husband named Matthew shared a perspective on marriage uh, quite similar to Samuel's that we just heard. Matthew also referenced God as the focus that, quote, binds marriage together, end quote. He said, after we're done arguing with each other and done trying for each of us to get our own way, we'll come back together and we say, you know, really, that we are one and we need to sacrifice for each other. I think it's the spiritual belief to me that it is God that is the glue that binds this marriage together. So one of the couples that we interviewed, an Asian mainline Protestant couple, spoke of using religious approaches to overcoming difficulties and restoring marital unity through the use of Scripture and prayer. Chen, the husband, said, I think sometimes when I'm able to share God's Word with her, sharing something in the Bible that I've read, that fine-tunes our thinking together when we are faced with difficulties. So with this major decision, I get guidance from God's Word, and I'm able to share with her what God speaks to me in the Word, and that helps us with many things. And then his wife Shin said, I think for me, praying together is very important. Even though we don't do it as much as I want to, that was something very important to me because we experience this closeness, not just to God, but with each other. Sometimes it is hard to express yourself, and somehow when you're praying together, we just express something that we may not have come up with before, but through hearing his prayer, I found something about his struggle or his inner thoughts just by praying together. For another wife named Debbie, shared faith-based service provided what she called real bonding and something that they both believe in. She related that in her marriage, it's the life here at the church and things going on or ways that we're involved. This is something that we have in common. It's something we communicate about. So it becomes a real bonding thing, something we both believe in and we seek to follow. Several couples in the sample shared the pursuit of their ideal of being one in their marriages. Yeah, and on that note, a second marital theme that emerged was relationship with God is reflected in marriage. And many of the participants expressed that their relationship with God gave them the perception of having something special in their marriage. Several described how their relationship with God provided a perspective of marriage above and beyond a simply legal union and clothed their descriptions of marriage in sacred language that referenced divine relations. A wife will call Ashley connected her marriage to her husband and her relationship with God in this way. She said, For me, my relationship with God just makes my marriage more reassuring because I know that divorce is not an option. 
I feel secure in my relationship with my husband. I know he'll take care of me as Christ takes care of the church and take care of the family. I never have any doubts about that. A husband named Jared spoke of a similar connection and explained, My relationship with God motivates me. It's really the prime motivator to be committed to our marriage and grow in our marriage. Otherwise, I'd just think I'd be looking at it as, what's in it for me? And what's the minimal approach? One wife spoke of her relationship and her husband's with God as, quote, maybe the most special thing because we just had this closeness that I think cannot be found in any other way, end quote. A belief that one's relationship with God is profoundly connected to one's marital relationship reportedly influenced many of our participants, wives and husbands. In the third and final domain that we're going to address, parent-child strengths, we found echoes of these same ideals in connection with parent-child relationships. So now shifting gears, as Lauren said, to parent-child strengths, the first theme is People talked about relating to each other through God brings unity in the parent-child relationship. So a son named Ryan said, A lot of the time now, because we're all so busy, whenever we hang out as a family, it's either at church or doing something that has to do with our Christianity. An adolescent daughter named Jen said, It's a serenity thing. It is a comfort to know that I can always come home and pray about things. And I know there's lots of times I call home from school and say, okay, mom and dad, just pray for me today. And just knowing that they're supporting to me and that they're going to God for me, it's kind of a cool connection. A daughter in another family, we'll call Jill, spoke of parent-child unity as, quote, a common bond as children of God. She said, Sometimes there are misunderstandings in family life, but having the common bond that we're all children of God and relating to each other through God brings a lot of unity. A father named Sean spoke of, quote, the forgiveness of God and its relational importance in both his marriage to his wife and also his relationships with his children. He said, I've had to ask my kids for forgiveness, so I hope that that would at least be one evidence that they could say, We're real people. We haven't got it all together. But we can accept and love each other because we extend the forgiveness of God and the grace of God to each other. We each know that we need it desperately. Uh, uh, Forgiveness was a practice that reportedly promoted parent-child closeness, and it was frequently mentioned. Another was prayer, or more specifically, parent-child prayer or family prayer. A son we'll call Jack spoke of his father's parent-child prayers with a reverence that we really appreciated. He said, Prayer has always been something that's central. Dad still gets up early and prays with the family and then prays with me, often before I go off. Obviously, I know that my dad cares for me. He's investing himself in my spiritual well-being and in my well-being in general. It's developed a concept of father and son, but also this idea that we're brothers in the faith. A young college-age daughter said of the prayers of uh, her parents and siblings, I mean, it's just like a security, almost like a security blanket. 
knowing that you have your family behind you and God behind you. You can go back and you can have your parents and your siblings be able to sit down and pray for you, ask for help. It's an awesome experience. A teen daughter named Jane reflected that in addition to prayer, Scripture can also build relationships and help with conflict resolution. And of her parents, she said, We have enough misunderstandings as it is. Sometimes we'll be on such different pages. But eventually, we look at the Word, at what God actually says. Then we can't have completely different arguments. We can't completely rationalize away what the other person is saying. You know, there's an extent where we have to be unified because of what God says, which makes it a lot easier to deal with each other. So we'll shift gears now and go to the second theme under the parent-child strengths domain. And that theme was about faith-based parental transformation. A number of participants saw their individual relationship with God as affecting their marriages and their relationships and conceptions of God also influencing their parenting as well. For example, one mother explained, Whenever we're frustrated with each other or with our children, we imagine how frustrated God is with us, and then it, well, it puts it in perspective. A mainline Native American father, we'll call Anoki, offered this assessment of his co-parenting. He said, I think our parenting style has altered as our faith has grown stronger. There's a lot more forgiveness attached to the consequences and a lot less anger in our particular parenting style than there was before. One mother said about forgiveness, In terms of family roles, we have been teaching our kids from an early age how much God has forgiven them, so they need to learn to forgive each other. We've worked pretty hard on that. That also means being able to go to our children when we have messed up as a parent and be able to say, sorry, I messed up. It's really only through God's power that I can do that. You know, Dave, we've mentioned on previous podcasts a comment that one of uh, my students made a couple years ago, which was that one thing that parents can model for their children that even God cannot is an apology, saying, I was wrong. Can you forgive me? And we've heard two or three really nice narratives, both from parents and children, reminding us of that reality. A father named Jimmy spoke of the meaning and structure that he felt his faith offered him, a faith he connected with the real happiness of his joyous kids. He said, when people ask me, why are your kids so good and so happy? Not robot good, but just joyous kids. I explained to them, because there's a structure and they know where their happiness lies and where it doesn't lie, and they love it, and they just want to please God and us. Although from a different family, an 18-year-old daughter offered a child's witness that for some families, a sacred view of parent-child relations matters. She said, God has really given me a love and respect for my parents. I think what God has given me is a desire to obey what he has commanded. So when I obey my parents, it doesn't feel so much like I'm obeying all the rules. It actually feels like the right thing to do. So across domains, uh, participants expressed how their own belief in God and their personal relationship with him became a lens 
through which they were able to not only see themselves differently, but also to see parents, marital partners, and children differently as well. You know, Lauren, you're um, quoting from a couple of kids you spoke about their love of their parents and that God gave them a sense of honoring their parents reminds me of that. I did all these interviews with all these youth, and I was so impressed with so many of the youth who, in various ways, said that because they loved God, because they believed that God loved them, and because they believed in God's Word, you know, part of that Word is to honor father and mother. And so they felt like, uh, again, as this gal said, not because it's a rule, but because a God who they loved asked them to do this, they honor their parents. And they would share about how they would observe among uh, their friends, uh, often their peers, that they were lying to their parents, they were sneaking around behind their parents' back, that they were rude and argumentative with their parents. And these you know, religious kids would say, you know, I just can't do that. God loves me. God loves my parents. God's asked me to honor my parents, so I can't lie to them. I can't sneak around behind their back. I need to be honest with them. And I was really impressed with how often that was expressed by kids of various faiths, including these mainline Protestant folks. So the folks that we interviewed, uh, the mainline Protestant folks that we interviewed for our study, frequently expressed how their relationship with God gave them a purpose or a framework or kind of what some of our friends and colleagues, Pam King and Benson, called a transcendent worldview. They shared that their beliefs and practices like attending church together, personal prayer, couple prayer, family prayer, scripture study— these kinds of religious practices were beneficial influences in their marriage and family relationships. Uh, a lot of them spoke about how unity was increased. They felt closer to their spouse and or closer to their children and to their parents because of those religious beliefs and because of those practices. A number spoke about how that sense of unity was a main emphasis for them in their lives. And this sense of God's closeness and God's support for them was manifest across their whole life and in their marriage and family. And it's one of those things that we've, now that we've studied, oh, let's see, about 300 families together of many different faiths, that's one of the core themes is that there is something about shared belief, shared religious practice, shared religious service that really has an effect to draw people together within families. Several of the participants shared their positive views of a loving and forgiving God who cared for them personally and deeply, and that these conceptions and that the sense of of relationship, divine relationship, changed or shaped the way that they approached their own family relationships and how they interacted with their children and their spouse. Our study joins other scholarship that has demonstrated that experiencing loving relationships allows for the capacity to experience God as loving as well. One statement that we share with our students in a senior family relationships class that we teach here at our university is from Robert Ingersoll, in which he says, it is difficult for a child to find a father in God unless she finds something of God in her father. And it is notable that for these youth, as we mentioned, they have close relationships and in most cases with both of their parents. 
a reality that has shown up in a wide array of research, including our own, that indicates that the warmer the relationship between child and parent, the more likely that uh, the child will retain their parent's faith as they move into adulthood, although there are certainly no guarantees. Two of our co-authors on this chapter, our, our friends Pam and Rob, are themselves uh, practicing Christian and very involved in ministry of various kinds. And they helped us to understand, and, and now we share with you what they shared with us, that this sense of relationship with God having an impact on relationship with others really derives out of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. And they shared some verses from Scripture that we'd like to share now. They mentioned that the New Testament offers Jesus' loving actions of sacrifice and forgiveness and compassion as an example for human beings to try to do likewise. Jesus taught the importance of loving others as ourselves in Mark 12, 31, and in doing to others as we would have them do to us in Matthew 7, 12. The prominence of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ often leads Christians to believe that people can bring God's transforming love to others. In short, they said, we love because God loved us first, referring to 1 John 4.19. Also, the Bible attests to the goodness of each unique person as God's creation that are, quote, fearfully and wonderfully made from the Psalms 139.14, and as a child of God from 1 John 3.1, or as made in God's image, from Genesis 1.27. Also, the writings of the Apostle Paul teach that Christians should treat each other with compassion, with kindness, with humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love, particularly Colossians 3.12-14. Talk about those. And that individual strengths embodied in the scriptural characteristics of God the Father and Jesus, and also the fruits of the Spirit, discussed in Galatians 5.22. Furthermore, uh, many mainline Protestant Christians believe in the transforming power of God's love through the Holy Spirit that enables human beings to love others with newfound purpose and means. So this emphasis is on not simply trying to behave in a certain way, but seeking through God's love and His grace through the Holy Spirit the ability to change and be made a, a new person who is able to love others the way that Christ loves others. Dave, one of our major aims in our 25 years of working together has been to be able to convey a sense of deep respect and hopefully holy envy across denominations, across world faiths, by looking at the most noble and beautiful elements of both religious belief and religious practice. And for us, there was some holy envy stirred as we found ourselves frequently inspired by devout mainline Christian families' efforts to live out their beliefs in pragmatic ways, uh, first in their marriages and families, and then by serving their sisters and brothers in God's family. There was a queer focus, for many at least, to love their neighbors as themselves. And for many mainline Protestant Christians, they do believe in the transforming power of God's love through the Holy Spirit, and that that can enable humans to love others more deeply, to love them even in the same way that Jesus loves them. 
one of, I think, both of our favorite examples. We didn't share in this article or in our discussion to this point, involved a mainline Protestant mother who mentioned in her interview, I believe with you, how her husband took their son to a soup kitchen each Saturday, where together they served food to persons who were homeless, and that for them, that was not just a service, but that was a very real part of their faith and their love of Jesus to serve the poor as he did, the marginalized. That particular mother spoke in glowing terms of the effect that this ritual, this tradition, this practice of serving in the the soup kitchen had on her husband and son's relationship together, illustrating their progressive approach to religion that emphasized social justice and care in what we might call a, a horizontal way. These efforts inspire some holy envy in us. And there were similar examples of shared practices that some might not look at as explicitly religious, like prayer studying texts, but that were religious to these families. And those were efforts that were relational and sacred in nature for these families. Yeah, you you mentioned that particular family. I remember well that interview where the mother did speak in glowing ways and also with some tears in her eyes about how proud she was of her husband and her son who would go each Saturday and, as I recall, and do this service and serve people in real need. And they, I remember as she talked about that, they, this father and son, looked at each other and smiled and they felt this sense that they were doing something for God, for God's people. That was really meaningful in and of itself, that it was valuable and meaningful as a manifestation of their Christian beliefs. But it was so clear that doing that service together brought them together and made them feel closer to each other. So it was a sort of a, a triple blessing. They were blessing someone's life by serving food to homeless folks. They were blessing their own personal relationship with each other, and they were making you know, the mom proud of the teenage boy. And actually, uh, I need to say that, as you were talking about a sense of holy envy and deep admiration, it was actually the example of this family that, as we talked about it, my wife suggested that we as a family should do likewise. And so we went with our seven kids. When we got back to Provo, we began once a month together for our family home evening activity. We would make 20 bagged lunches for the homeless shelter in our community, and we would deliver those to them. And so that was a way for us to together do something for someone else. And it was inspired in part by this particular family. A number of folks talked about how their views of a loving and forgiving God and their experiences with that God who cared for them personally and intimately allowed them and sort of shaped the way that their own family relationships went and the way that they interacted with each other and their family. And these efforts were richly captured and reflected in phrases that they use, such as relating to each other through God brings a lot of unity, or God's relationship with us is reflected in our marriage. As I think back on my own childhood, growing up predominantly in a small community in Oregon, I thought of two clergy in particular. One, Gordy Myra, who led a a Lutheran congregation in our community. And it seemed like 
Gordy, he was always there. Whatever community event you were attending, you'd see his face, whether it was an athletic event or a cultural event. He was out and about, and he was shaking hands, encouraging and uplifting across denominational boundaries. And I appreciated his humanistic orientation. I will just briefly say that my childhood interactions with all ministers were not positive, that uh, there certainly was some bias and, and perhaps even some bigotry in some cases. And I never got any feel like that from Gordy Myra and, and appreciated that. Also appreciated the warmth. I had a dad who encouraged us to participate in respectfully uh, worship services with friends of different faiths, and we had that opportunity to attend his congregation occasionally at the Lutheran Church there in town. But I wanted to finish up by mentioning someone who's a bit of a hero of mine, also a mainline minister in my town. And I don't even know this man in a personal way. His name is Bernie Lindley. And because the, the town that I grew up in is located on Pacific Coast Highway 101, there's a lot of a, a transient population that comes through. Folks hitchhiking up and down the Oregon and California coast. And there tend to be an inordinately high number of homeless or displaced population that either come through or remain, in part because of the location, in part because of the relatively mild climate. And this has, over the years, been distressing to some in the community who don't like the way that it looks. But uh, Bernie Lindley, an Episcopal minister there in town, has spent tremendous effort in, in feeding, in reaching out to the homeless. And outside of the Little Red Church that, uh, that he's helped operate there for years are several picnic tables that serve the homeless, not just at given meal times, but are always open and available to them. I have to confess a sense of holy envy for the efforts of Bernie Lindley across years, the, the Christian compassion that I've seen him show to the least of these, our brethren. You're sharing those experiences from your childhood. Uh, it reminds me of my own upbringing in the Episcopal Church. And I was raised in the Episcopal Church because an Episcopal minister uh, named Todd Ewald and his wife, uh, when they read in the newspaper about the uh, head-on collision between a drunk driver and a man who was my grandfather, in which my grandfather was killed at age 42, they, having read that in the paper, sought out and went to visit the widow, my grandmother, and her five children. And they brought the meals and they fellowship them and continued to come and, and to minister to them to the extent that my grandmother decided to shift from the Baptist church that she was raising her kids in over to the Episcopal church. So my father, who at that time was 14 when his father was killed, he and his younger brother, Gene, and his older brother, Rob, and his other older brother, uh, Ray, they all became involved as teenagers in this Episcopal church. And so Later on, you know, when, when my dad got out of the military, he married my mom, who was raised Catholic, and, and my mom and dad were married in the Episcopal Church by Father Ewald, who became basically a kind of a, a father figure 
to those five kids who were left without a father. My grandmother died not too many years, I think it was three or four years after that herself, and so they were left orphans, and Father Ewald was essentially their uh, adopted father. And so when I came along, I was raised in that church called the Church of the Holy Innocents in Larkspur, California, near right near San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And so uh, that was my upbringing, was Father Ewald was uh, a revered person in our home and almost like a grandfather in some senses for me. And so I served as an altar boy, an acolyte in that faith for three years uh, from ages 9 to 12, in which I helped, you know, carry the large wooden and gold cross uh, at the processional and the recessional as the priests and, and the choir entered and then left the church uh, you know, at the beginning and the end of the services. Uh, I also helped in extinguishing candles, serving communion, uh, passing the plate, and whatever ways you know, Father Ewald asked me to help. And it was interesting, that particular church was this fascinating combination of high church Episcopal worship, which involved you know, pretty high uh, liturgical content, uh, the use of incense, you know, chanting in Latin, and you know, very much like a Catholic mass, with a kind of a folksy, friendly feel as well. For example, I remember a number of times Father Ewald would, after the choir finished singing a number, uh, Father Ewald would stand up and say, now I know that we're not really supposed to clap here in the sanctuary, but don't you just want to join me in applauding our choir for that beautiful number? And then he would start clapping. And let's just say there are a lot of older ladies in the congregation that weren't necessarily enthusiastic about clapping in church because that wasn't how they were raised. But they went ahead and joined Father Ewald in, in expressing appreciation to the choir. It was also an interesting combination because in the 60s, the uh, charismatic Christian movement took off. And it's a fascinating movement where Catholic services, Episcopal services that tend to be you know, pretty high church would be followed by, or perhaps in the evening, they would gather in the basement and have charismatic Christian services where the gifts of the Spirit were sought, speaking in tongues, laying on of hands for healings, uh, prophesy, other spiritual gifts were sought. And it's actually quite interesting. Uh, I just looked this up on Wikipedia uh, just yesterday to see you know, when it was, because I recall that that was an issue that was happening in the church that I was in, and I wondered when it started. And here's what I read from Wikipedia, quote, the charismatic movement is the international trend of historically mainstream Christian congregations adopting beliefs and practices similar to Pentecostalism. Fundamental to the movement is the use of spiritual gifts, charismata. Among mainline Protestants, the movement began around 1960. And then this is the part that I find particularly interesting, quote, the high church wing of the American Episcopal Church became the first traditional ecclesiastical organization to feel the impact of the new movement internally. And then it goes on to talk about an Episcopal priest, Dennis Bennett, who is rector of uh, St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, who in uh, his sermon recounted his Pentecostal experience to his parish and did it again the next two Sundays, including Easter Sunday, during which many of his congregations shared his experience, causing him to be forced to resign. And the controversy and press coverage led to sort of a spreading of an awareness of this emerging charismatic movement, and uh, the movement then grew to other faiths. So Father Ewald and then my uncle, 
who became an Episcopal priest and spent his life as an Episcopal priest, they were both involved in this kind of emerging charismatic movement. So there's the high church services happening up in the sanctuary, and then later, usually in the evening in a week, as I recall, they would meet in the basement and have these sort of Pentecostal services. And I remember my parents talking about that, that this was, uh, in their minds, new and sort of strange, and they were a little skeptical of it, but, you know, but at least they were curious about it. So despite, you know, what was happening in the basement at uh, Holy Innocence, my own family was fairly conventional. And uh, like many mainline Christian families in those days, we didn't pray as a family. We didn't say grace at meals. We didn't read the Bible at home, except on the occasions about once or twice a year when my uncle, Gene, who was a priest, would come to our home uh, for Christmas or Easter dinner, and then he would invite us to join hands around the table, and he would offer a little grace. And, and I remember as a kid that that felt really comfortable. It felt really nice. And then, of course, as I became a teenager, that became a little bit awkward to be holding hands with my siblings or my parents. But nonetheless, it felt, something about it felt good, felt right. So much so that when my wife and I got married and we started having children, I asked her if it was okay if we joined hands when we prayed for our grace at meals and for our evening prayers as a family. And she said that would be fine. And so we did that in our family. And that's something that my children know. So the practice in my own household goes back to my uncles visiting us for holidays. Nonetheless, when I decided to convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1978, when I was 19, my parents uh, were, to say the least, not happy. They were, in fact, quite upset. And they asked my Uncle Gene to come and try to talk me out of joining the LDS or the Mormon faith. And he came over dressed in his priestly robes and sat with me for a couple of hours, uh, you know, going through all the theological reasons why I really should not join this, this organization, which he considered to be uh, a sect, uh, if not actually a cult. And I still have, in fact, I'm looking at it right now up in my bookshelves. I still have the Book of Common Prayer uh, that we used in the Episcopal Church that my mother gave to me before she died. And it, it's an important part of my religious upbringing to, to know that my parents came together and they sort of met in the middle. You know, my, my dad raised Baptist, my mom raised Catholic, and then they kind of met in the Episcopal Church. And they were unified enough to raise me in that church. And my dad's family cared enough about that to be very involved. And I, I'm now remembering that my father was a lay reader in our services. And so during a certain point in the services, he would get up, go to the podium or the, the lectern, and open this huge Bible and read a few verses from it. And as was the, uh, the practice, he would close up that reading of the scriptures by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then the congregation would say, this is the word of the Lord, or something like that. Anyway, that upbringing has been meaningful to me throughout my life. And I'm grateful to to my parents uh, who raised me in the Protestant Episcopal Church. If I can close with, with one particular point of holy envy, something I have admired, and I touched on this with the example of Bernie Lindley earlier, Dave, we have had the pleasure to interview a number of families across a number of faiths, perhaps 20 plus denominations, three or four different world faiths, 
And I've been struck at how well religious communities tend to take care of their own, making almost heroic efforts to take care of their sisters and brothers within faith. And in that deserves to be honored. What I, I think I appreciate most in some ways about our mainline friends, like Bernie Lindley, who I mentioned earlier, is that I see in them a desire and an active effort to reach out regardless of denominations, to reach across barriers. And it is something that has always inspired some holy envy in me to have a Christianity without borders, without denomination, that just delights in serving sisters and brothers in the Lord's family. And I want to make sure to put that on the record and thank our friends of these denominations for the efforts they make in that way. Well, and Lauren, your comment reminds me of something that I, I don't know that I've ever expressed publicly, but I'd like to now. And that is Father Ewald and his wife. I apologize, I don't remember her name. The fact that they did, as you just said, they reached out across denominational lines and uh, went to visit this widow and her now fatherless children, my grandmother and, and my uh, uncles and aunt, that made a huge difference for them. I mean, we know what can happen when children have to do without the love of one of their parents. And in this case, very soon after my grandfather died, my grandmother did too. I think it was three or four years. And so they were truly left orphans. And those boys went into the military, at least Three of those four boys went into the military, and the other went into the Episcopal ministry. And they became good citizens, good husbands and fathers. Uh, my aunt became a wonderful person, and it was in part, at least, due to that reaching out across denominational lines of Father Ewald and his wife. And you know, some who might listen to this might be aware that Father Ewald uh, had a troubled life. He struggled with substance abuse, and he and his wife actually ended up taking their own lives later in their life. And he was not a perfect man. You know, he made mistakes. And you know he was a beloved figure in that community, but he wrestled with his own inner demons and his own weaknesses and human challenges. And yet his faith was helpful to him and meaningful to him, and he reached out and helped others. He also hurt some others, but he, uh, like all of us, a flawed and weak and sinful person, turned to Jesus, turned to God, and received strength to be a better person and to reach out and help others in their distress and to help turn their hearts to God as well. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.